Hello and welcome back to China Clean Tech, Shanghai Chuangxing. My name is Marilyn Wei, Wei Ma Li, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Andrew Chang, Zhang Tianlong. Pleasure to be here. We are thrilled to launch the third season of the China Clean Tech podcast. For our first episode, we are excited to introduce Dr. Xu Hu, Deputy Head of Research at the Chinese Academy of Financial Inclusion. The Chinese Academy of Financial Inclusion (CAFI), otherwise known as CAFI, founded in 2014, is an international professional research institute under the School of Finance and Economics at Renmin University of China. Guided by the concept of commitment, action, focus, and impact, CAFI is committed to building a first-class think tank and platform for financial inclusion, facilitating the development of an inclusive financial system, and fulfilling the vision of good finance and good society. And CAFI's endeavors focus upon academic research and forward-looking advocacy in the fields of financial inclusion. Let's give a big warm welcome to Dr. Xu Hu. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. So first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Actually, I'm a U.S.-trained macroeconomist. I got my doctorate degree from Texas A&M University, and then after that, I started teaching at Fudan University for about seven years, and then I moved to. Pingan joined Pingan, the largest insurer of China, for about two and a half years, and then this year I joined Chinese Academy of Financial Inclusion and leading the initiative to bring the impact investing from Nietzsche to mainstream. That's fantastic. And tell us about the Chinese Academy of Financial Inclusion in the context of sustainability and ESG. We've been advocating financial inclusion in China for years. The banking system in China has become more inclusive than. Six years ago, when we were funded, we think we are part of this movement. Our thought leadership is well recognized by policymakers. In addition to policy advices, we also communicate with practitioners such as banks, microfinance institutions, and some new players like tech companies. Knowing what is going on in the market is very important, so we keep policymakers informed. From this year, we have a new initiative: is to help impact investors who want to allocate capital. Into financial inclusion, into financial inclusion sector in China, these are investors who not only want to have financial returns but also social impact. We think our subject matter expertise could help them navigate this landscape, maybe not just financial inclusion but also related social issues. Meanwhile, we also want to bring impact investing from Nietzsche to mainstream, and that's why we organize a conference on impact investing every year. We did our we did our first annual conference in July. That's fantastic. And just in the context of President Xi's carbon neutrality agreement, you know, what kind of trends have you been seeing just in terms of the impact investment space? Many people have been advocating impact investing in China for years. Starting from this year, investors are actually not just asking the questions why should I make impacts, but also are looking for investment opportunities. So we actually see the momentum. That's encouraging. I mean. So it's really been a challenge being in this space for almost seven or eight years now. You know, oftentimes when we pitch to investors, if we start with impact, you know, they'll they'll stop us mid sentence. But nowadays, it's so important that investments have impact benefits, and now it 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 goes to show that there are strong financial returns in investing in clean energy, and so. I think the market has changed, and it's it's good to hear that、uh, investors are are moving in that in that direction. So it's better than past, but still there's some challenges ahead. I think they're still looking for examples, so they're looking for actionable insights, so they can actually do something. Yeah, yeah. 
and that's where you guys come in, right? I mean, this is this is a lot of the research that you guys are conducting is identifying where the pain points are and where the discrepancies are in, in understanding of the market. Can you tell us a little bit about your research? We actually have been very much focusing on doing the uh, field studies. One thing we do actually uh, a lot is to do uh, to pay tri- tri- pay uh, field trips to many places in China. So we have the first-hand experiences of, about what is going on. We see many places, uh, especially some rural areas. So that is, um, that is one thing. And also we have been, as I just mentioned, we have been very much communicate with practitioners. So that will help us to understand what is going on in the markets. So that's, um, that's two major things. And also we have put a lot of emphasis on, on collecting data. Yeah, that's pretty much how we do research here. Moving on to my second question, you know, how do you define financial inclusion in the China context, right? And you know, financial inclusion is defined differently in, in various markets. What is, what is unique about the Chinese market? Financial inclusion in general means uh, making you know, basic financial services accessible, accessible to people, communities, more businesses that are traditionally underserved. For example, making people living in rural areas have bank accounts so they can make transfer payments make consumer credit accessible to low-income people, provide loans to small businesses. In the past, the sector uh, and the policies were primarily on credit. So looking forward, we think uh, we should look at other types of services more, for example, insurance. We think, uh, for example, we can provide more uh, insurance for farmers so they can hedge against the risk of natural disasters, provide low-income people with health insurance and pensions. So the insurance is not a direction that we think it's going to be very important in the next five years. Yeah, thank you, Xu. And quickly on this, is there an unbanked population in China when it comes to the you know, basic banking services? We have seen improvement on the bank account ownership in China. 80% of outbound population has a bank account, at least one bank account. That's actually increased from like 63% about 10 years ago. So in terms of the uh, banker account ownership, China is doing better 80% of countries in the world. So that is a, a good thing. But clearly, there is still a room for improvement. For example, the numbers of people, the number of populations have uh, bank branches accessible to them. The number is still low. So I think there's still a room for improvement. Thank you. Over to you, Andrew. All right. Thanks, Marilyn. Yeah. So my next question is, is in China right now, there's there's been a strong emphasis on this campaign or this this idea or this way of thinking of common prosperity. How does this impact your work at CAFI, and what does this mean for small and medium sized business owners? And is there a way for them to participate in this clean energy transition? For us, common prosperity means an inclusive growth model. The idea is that if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go long, you go together. It's clear, it's clear to us that China has entered a new phase of growth, which is going to be more inclusive. If you visit Shanghai, you may be amazed by how many luxury cars are on the streets, while the situation is very different in rural areas of China. For example, the average annual disposable income for a person from a rural household is less than half of that for a person from an urban family. It's not just about uh, income and wealth and equality. It is also about 
the inequality of education, healthcare, and services for seniors. So solving this urban and rural divide is important. If people think they have a chance, no matter what their social status is, they'll try. People will innovate, people will work hard, and that is the power of inclusion. For us at CAFE, we just launched a new research agenda is to understand how to, how to reform the banking system in rural China so it can be more inclusive and it can be helpful to rural developments. There are about roughly 1,600 community banks that operate in rural areas in China. Some of them are doing okay, making profits, but some others are not. So we want to understand how to achieve the dual objectives, profits and social impact. We don't have the answer yet. Can't wait to do the research. As for the question about the green transition, one implication of a green transition is that some old ways of doing businesses will become more costly. So for example, companies will be asked to pay more for using fossil fuels, will face higher costs of capital. Currently, there is a discussion on what banks are supposed to do about small businesses that are not so green. To be more, on one hand, to be more inclusive, banks are encouraged to extend credit to small businesses. To support green transition, banks are encouraged to fund green projects. What if the majority of small businesses are not as green as large ones? So, so we still don't have the uh, answers to this question. People are talking about this now. Another issue about green transition is its impact on labor markets. According to some academic studies, Green jobs require skills that are more analytical and abstract, less routine and less repetitive. If we imagine what a green economy looks like in the future, I guess you, you, need, a, you, need, to have a green, you need to have a high school diploma to be employable, right? But the matter of fact is that more than 70% of China's labor force did not go to academic high school as of 2015. So it's likely these people don't have, have not acquired analytic skills that could help them succeed in a green economy. If we want to have in, an inclusive green transition, I guess we need to look at this human capital gap. Thanks, Xu. So I would love to come in because I heard something that I have never heard before, and that is that there are 1,600 community banks in China. You know, in my work, we tend to focus on the very few, very large state-owned banks that you will see in Shanghai or Beijing, Shenzhen. And even when I lived in China, I remember my bank account being tied to a specific branch. And if I wanted to make changes, and this is you know a long time ago, but if I wanted to make changes, I would have to go back to that specific branch. And so when I would move from one city to another, it was very difficult to make certain changes because I would be attached to that branch. So I'm wondering, one, has that changed? I'm thinking about rural mobility and mobility in general in China. Can you have a national account? And two, the 1600 community banks, I'm wondering if they function like other community banks. Okay. As for the first question, actually, I have a good answer to that. The answer is yes, it's changed. Actually, I have opened a bank account about 20 years ago when I was in the university, and I, I, I forgot to uh, cancel it. I, I forgot to close the account. So 10 years later, 
I was in Shanghai, I decided to, you know, close that account, but I can't, but I, but as you just mentioned, uh, from your experiences, I cannot do that. They don't allow me to, to cancel, to close the accounts that I operate in a different city while I'm in Shanghai. But um, just two, um, two months ago, I went to another, I went to a branch to, to, to check it out. It turned out to be, I can close that account while I was in Shanghai, even though the account is, is opened in another city in China. So for your first question, it changed. So that's the good news. For your second question, actually, I haven't been uh, studying a lot about the community banks in the United States. So uh, actually, uh, we're still, we are still uh, looking into the causes why the, the 1600 community banks are not, some of them are not doing really good in China. And I can give you some more information about the ecosystem they are, they are in. So first off, or if you want to, the community banks are actually uh, funded or majorly owned by another bank. Say I'm a bank of uh, Beijing or a bank of uh, China. I want to have a community bank. I will invest some of the money and I will be the major uh, shareholder of this uh, community bank. So this is how it works. And one of the reasons that people are talking about for these community banks are not making profits is that they are restricted in many ways. They're restricted in the scope of the business you can do. They are restricted in the geography. So for a bank to work, actually, you, you know, if you can't attract a lot of deposits, then the cost of debt or the cost of capital would be low, right? The community banks are actually restricted in the in the uh, regions they can operate. So they can only say if they are in a county and they can only attract deposits from this county and they can make loans in this uh, county. So that geographic restriction actually means that they have higher cost of capital, have higher cost of uh, deposits, and also means they have the, they're less liquid. So this is one of the reasons that people mention that uh, for this community banks are not making profits. We are going to dig into this, but for, for the moment, I, I think this is the answer. No, this is fascinating. And I look forward to your research conclusions here because the community focused banks, including cooperative banks called credit unions in the U.S., yeah. they, are, they can have deposits from anywhere in the United States, right? So... And this is part of how we scale community-focused, community-led, sustainable finance, climate-friendly finance is by attracting deposits across the country, right? And so one of the best ways, you know, people often ask, what can I do for climate? How can I help? Well, if you put your $1, (laughs) whether it's in checking or savings, in this climate-friendly bank account in the U.S., including the community banks, then that bank can, of course, leverage that $1 Mm -hmm. 10 times and provide these climate-friendly loans. And so it's a really important lever. And so it'd be interesting to see what you find because I I had no idea. And that constraint makes a lot of sense, right? If If they cannot access the huge market of deposits across China, then of course that would bring constraints to, to their ability to lend and, and, and become sustainable financially for themselves. So, wow, yeah. that's fascinating. Thanks, thanks for letting us know. We look forward to those results.
Shu, I had a question just just in terms of this green transition and, and, and jobs in particular, right? I mean, this whole transition is uh, one of the biggest challenges is not just the financing bit, but the transfer of skills and training, right? And so can we train someone who operated a coal-fired power plant to operate and manage a utility-scale solar power plant or build offshore wind? Do you have any statistics on that? Or, you know, you mentioned that it's, it is a challenge because the requirement and threshold of skill level is much higher. Can you dive a little bit more into that? In fact, I haven't looked in deep in this, into this field. So I may not have a good answer to this questions, but I, I, I'm looking forward to actually study this to understand if I get fired or I lose my job in a, um, you know, in a coal fire plant, you know, how, you know, how can I find a jobs in another sector? You know, how many, how many trainings that I need to, to get another job? So that, that's a very interesting question. I have answers for this for the moment. But one of the things that people, scholars have been talking about for China in particular is that because there's a, there's a majority of the labor force did not go to academic high school. So the, the capability for them to learn new stuff is actually low. So, so that is the so-called the human capital uh, problems that we are facing today. The challenge actually is to solve this human capital problem takes a long time to change mm. the whole, you know, the whole labor force. So, you know, to your question, I, I don't have the specifics, but, um, but that's, um, that's a very good question. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that's something that I do think that a lot of government is trying to tackle, right? And I do think that, um, I, I do believe there are training programs out there that are, are making that switch. And now and in, in next couple of years, it's, it's going to have to happen. So the labor force will have to switch over to green energy, clean energy jobs. And, you yeah. know, with, with, with uh, President Xi's recent G20 summit announcement, you know, clean energy, climate was 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 on that list yeah. and promoting clean energy uh, clean energy technologies all throughout china and, and you know coalescing international collaboration to address this is is key so i look forward to seeing that Marilyn, i'm going to pass it over to you now thanks andrew so i'd like to follow up on the pension side which you mentioned briefly earlier shu and so for our listeners who are mostly in the US and are familiar with that system in terms of retirement savings are there equivalent products to the IRA or Roth IRA in China or even you know for other types of savings like 529 plans for educational savings tell us more if there if that exists in China and if so how does it exist um, that, that's a very interesting question. From my point of view, I think there are no there are no equivalent products to the 529 plans for education savings, but there are some pilot programs starting from 2018 experimenting the tax deferred retirement saving plans offered by insurance companies. But that's still at its infancy. So people are talking about that. The problems uh, is that the uh, incentive. The tax saving incentive is is not very large, so the participation is not very large. What about the this kind of defined contribution space, the, like the four hundred one k four hundred three b equivalent? Are there these you know employer linked savings plans for retirement in China? To a large extent, the pension system in China is run by governments. There are three layers. 
Layer one is foundational, run by local governments, is subsidized and has defined contribution and defined benefits. Layer two is what you mentioned, employer-linked or employer-sponsored annuity programs. Layer three is the retirement saving plans that households can voluntarily buy from insurance companies. For the moment, layer two and three are very, very marginal. So the pension system in China primarily rely on layer one. So far, we don't have 40, 41K equivalent stuffs, but, but people are discussing that whether China should introduce 41K plans. So it's still in the, in the, in the process of discussing. For, let me give you some numbers about the space. The layer one government-run saving plans, as of 2017, there are more than 900 million participants in layer one. Before layer two, only had 23 million participants. So you can see this, this just clear mm. difference between this government-run pension system and this the, uh, employer-linked annuity programs. For layer one, there are two tracks. Historically, there are four tracks, but then they are merged into two tracks. One is for employed, and the other one is for unemployed. So for the employed, the retirement saving plans are monetary. So every month I have to put 8% of my wage into this individual account, and my company would pay 20% of my wage into this account. And after I retired, and also if I have contributed for more than 15 years. So in terms of that decarbonization, creating and investing both in the private markets and the public markets, you know, public equities, fixed income into climate friendly industries and activities. Does that exist today? Is there choice in these products? Tell us more about that. Actually, I don't think so. There is, um, as I just mentioned, there's this, there's this mandatory saving plans. So there's still a lack, still um, a serious lack of options for for, for people in China to, you know, wants to uh, save for their retirements. But you're right. Got there's, it. There, but there's, you know, there's this great opportunity, you know, to leverage this money uh, for the climate action. Right. And so I'm assuming that the, the social security layer one system, uh, that being probably government regulated and invested, if it, you know, it probably should align with the government's plan of 3060, right? Peaking emissions in 2030 and becoming net zero by 2060, but that that's also a question for the investors that are managing uh, these funds for on behalf of the social security system. So that's also a, a key factor. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Shu. Andrew, any final questions? Yeah, I had one question. Just going back on on the topic of banks being more inclusive. How are banks becoming more financially inclusive and now more and more financial institutions must adhere to strict ESG mandates. So how is this going and what are some of the challenges being encountered? I think for us that for ESG, um, I think we, we think it's important to go beyond ESG matrix to really look at the uh, real impact that banks have on its customers and on its uh, employees. Financial institution or a company in general may have a super ESG score but if its customers and its employees complain about the company a lot on the social media and some of its activities are really harmful to, to harmful to society, I guess sooner or later we will see the correction and that is going to be reflected in the share price. And as for the ESG mandate, um, we think there are two major themes uh, going on in China now. 
One is climate action. China's goal is to peak carbon emission by 2030 and achieve carbon carbon neutrality by 2060. The other is the rural revitalization, the rural developments. Chinese banks are encouraged to support both, but the agricultural sector and the communities in the rural areas that banks are asked to support are not necessarily green. So at least for the moment, so so banks needs to find instruments to help the sectors and the communities go green. I think this is an an important challenge to find out the instruments for transition. Okay, thank you. And I also noticed that Ant Financial is is one of your sponsors or partners. Part of their whole mission originally was really to try to serve the underserved market, right? So, yeah, folks that couldn't have access to loans because they didn't have collateral, they didn't have some type of credit profile. So, how is what Anforce sort of their mission is? Sorry, excuse me, and financial. Um, how is what they're doing different than what the banks are doing? So that's that's really my own opinions on this.、Uh, I think on finance has its、uh, advantage of using its platform. So its platform gives them two advantages. One is the you know they can they can find the customers. They know their customers' need for credits for financial services. You know when you you know when you order something from Taobao, probably that 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 item or you know buy an iPhone which is which is too expensive for you, but you can't actually afford it in the long term. So he wants to have installment plan. So Ali or the on finance know you know you well, right? So you have a need or demand for credits. So they actually can know the customers well, and though they they their demand well, so that's the ones they can assess a lots of、uh, customers. So that's one advantage they have. The other one is that is that they could manage the risk well because they have a lot of data to understand how risky a lender is. So that is really the two advantages they they have compared with the traditional banks. Yeah, but banks are banks are actually moving to collaborate with the tech companies are too. Yeah, no, that's interesting because I I am I'm doing a case study for my business school on Ant Financial right now, and just、okay. uh, it's exciting to see sort of where they come from, where they are now, and obviously they've went gone through some speed bumps. But I I think that the the original mission and intention of what they were trying to do was very much focused on leveraging their Capabilities of of data risk profiling, you know, and assessing who their customers are and what their needs are.、Yeah. Um, I think that that's sort of their biggest biggest secret. So, shoot, let's keep in touch and and all the work you guys are doing around impact investment. Well,、uh, keep us in the loop, and so we can see how we can support each other. Absolutely. Thank you for this opportunity, Andrew and Marilyn. Thank you, Shu. So, Marilyn, tell me what were some of your takeaways from your conversation with Shu. So it was very enlightening to find out more about the the Chinese banking, insurance, and retirement savings pension ecosystem, and think about where things are. And as I was listening to Shu, I was thinking about solutions, about ways of leveraging this. System and these pools of capital for decarbonization, and yet I also was thinking, how can we prevent what hasn't worked in other jurisdictions, other parts of the world, from coming into China, and the pros and cons of these different systems, and the push though that it creates or it has created in the U.S. context towards the the capital markets and public equities? Would I want more capital to be put into a system? That is disconnected from the real economy, and that has 
quarterly pressure points for profits as opposed to a more long-term vision of the future? So what I'm hearing is that, you know, how is it that we can empower the consumer? How can the consumer have more choice around where their deposits go? And is there a system out there? Obviously, it's it's government run. Can that be supportive of the overall climate movement that needs to happen? And if not, that's a problem. And there needs to be more freedom to consumers and people who who have insurance plans, who have employer insurance plans to at least, you know, have some say as to where the money goes. Like, could we, like as humanity, <laughs> and could the, the, the Chinese stakeholders create a system where by default what's presented is decarbonized, hmm. is just, is environmentally and socially responsible, like by default, so that you remove the burden and, and the choice. I mean, this is a question, right? I don't, I think all the polling and data points to consumer preference, you know, especially the post-1990 generation in China being very green conscious. China is at a stage where you wouldn't necessarily have to introduce the harmful products to the consumer in the first place, right? You could just avoid that altogether, perhaps. And just give them green options. Yes. And the options are more along the lines of risk, but there's no, but, but, but by default, they're all climate friendly. And naturally, well, I believe this, you know, the Chinese government, President Xi, and, and a lot of these commitments are geared towards 2030, 2060, right? They're stopping the finance of new, newly built coal-fired power plants abroad. You know, there's still subsidies going to renewables. In a way, effectively, that is happening from a state level. Whether the consumers are participating in that or not is I'm unsure about, but I think the government sort of, as long as they are committed to doing something, they will do it. And it seems like that's happening. <laughs> 